All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're doing this uh, series of studies that are um, aimed at tackling subjects and questions and so forth that were submitted uh, over the last couple months. And this one, um, I'll be honest with you, I looked back through my records. I don't guess I've ever preached a entire sermon on Matthew chapter 19 since I got here uh, in 2015. We've talked about it in at least two questions and answers and a couple sermons here and there, but we've never actually studied the whole context of the passage, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to study Matthew chapter 19. Anytime you have a Q&A session or anytime you have a suggested topics. Mo- not any time, most of the time, you're going to have one subject that comes up more than others. In fact, um, I'm pretty surprised that we haven't had more questions about it in our Q&As during the months. But, um, and that is marriage. Something to do with marriage. Matthew chapter 19 is the, is the passage on marriage when it comes to Jesus' words. It's also recorded in Mark chapter 10. But Matthew 19 is where Jesus gives the, the New Testament answer to the questions that the Jews asked. And in this passage, there are three questions that are asked. And so what I called it was when Jesus hosts a Q&A. See if I can get back to that. There we go. When Jesus hosts a Q&A, he, th- these, these Pharisees come and ask him some questions. After he's, well, after he's been teaching for a long time, and they ask him a couple questions that we'll get to in just a minute. But let me, let me say this before we start. What we're going to talk about today is, is not divorce. We're going to talk about marriage. What we're going to talk about today is um, what Jesus has to say about a very important subject and a subject that, if we're careful, all we will get out of it is the negative. But I think in this passage you'll see that the first thing Jesus does is talk about the positive. All right? So, Matthew chapter 19 starting at verse number 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. The large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking. Now, pause for just a second. They came to him testing him. The word tested is the same word used in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came to tempt him. You see, back in Matthew 5, Jesus has already touched on this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. They know what Jesus believed about this question that they're about to ask him. They've already heard his teachings on this. But they came because they're trying to get him to, to, they're trying to, get him to mess up. They're trying to get him to say something different a second time. And if Jesus the Christ answers a question one way in this situation and a completely different way in this situation, then he cannot be the Christ. And so these people are not dumb. They know what they're doing. They came to Jesus to tempt him, to test him, to put him to the test just like like Satan had done uh, 
at the beginning of his ministry. All right? So, Matthew chapter 19, verse number 3. The Pharisees come to him, tested him, and say, question number one, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answers, have you not read that he who created him from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. So he focuses on the, first, on, on, the, on the positive to begin with. Question number one. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? At this time period, much like today, I'm just going to give you the two options. And those of you who have studied this passage before, you tell me if this sounds like the world today. Are you ready? There's one school of thought, and that is that a man can divorce his wife. No, not, not vice versa. A man can divorce his wife for any reason. In fact, the guy that came up with this was the man named Hillel. And Hillel was a rabbi, Jewish rabbi. It is said that he divorced his wife because she didn't like her manners. She wasn't very nice, and so he divorced his wife. In his writings, he said that you can divorce your wife for any reason, any reason, including that she burns the bread. Now, I just want to point something out. In two weeks is Rebecca and my anniversary. Seven years. If Hillel was right, we would have ended a long time ago. About the first time she made that hamburger casserole. By the way, if your wife ever comes to you and says, I found a, I found a, a recipe on Pinterest. It's called hamburger casserole. And all, all it is, guys, is a hamburger, bun, or hamburger patty with broccoli and hot sauce poured on it. It was the worst thing on the face of the planet. I love you so much. Okay, so Hillel says, you can divorce your wife for any reason. If she burns the bread, if you don't like her manners... irreconcilable differences. Y'all ever heard of that? If you don't like her manners, you just can't get along, you can divorce your wife. There's another teaching at that time named Shammai. This this rabbi named Shammai looked at Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 that says that if a man sees any impurity in his wife, then she can divorce him. And he looked at that and he said, well, what is the impurity? And so he, he sought it out. It's not just, I mean, man has a way, mankind has a way of saying things are bad that just honestly they're not that bad. And so he looked at scriptures. What is an impurity? Well, in the Old Testament, if you were impure, a number of things could have happened. You could have some issue of your skin called leprosy. You could have touched a dead body. You could have been around a woman during certain times. You could be the woman during certain times, so forth. If you were impure, it was because of some sort of either sin or a reminder of sin. It's not just something you don't like. It has to do with sin. And so, Shammai looked at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And said, that impurity has to be some sort of of sin. What kind of sin? Well, in their context, they would have understood that that sin was some sort of physical sexual sin. 
And so you have one group, Hillel, that says you can divorce your wife if she burns some bread or she makes hamburger casserole. And then on the other one, no, hamburger salad. And then on the other one, you say you can only divorce your wife if there's some kind of sexual immorality. So they ask Jesus this question. They're going to try to trick him. He's already answered it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, but they're going to try to see if he'll go with the other teaching now. There are more people around. There are different people around. And so maybe Jesus will come up with a different answer. And so he answers this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let how man separate. Doesn't answer their question. And he definitely doesn't answer their question the way that they, that he want, they wanted him to answer it. This thing is going crazy for me today. Anyways, he answers the question by going backwards. And so let's talk about, for just a second, the purpose of marriage. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, we'll be there here in just a second. Genesis chapter 2. What is the purpose of marriage? Genesis 2, God creates mankind. Verse 18, he looks down at the earth that he has created, the wonderful, luscious garden that he has created, all the animals, and so forth. He's already taken all of the animals in front of Adam so that Adam could name them. And now, God looks down, and you can almost see Adam's face when he's naming all of these animals. And he says, but there's no one for me. They all have things that are like them. I don't have one of those. I'm the only person. I'm the only human being. And so God says, it's not good for man to be alone. This is, aside from what we're going to talk about, about divorce, in just a little bit, this is probably the more um, unpopular opinion. And it's this idea that you are not meant to be alone. Period. If we're talking about marriage, you're not meant to be alone. If you're talking about friendships, you're not meant to be alone. If you're talking about faith, you're not meant to be alone. God did not create mankind to be islands in and of ourselves. I mean, think about it. It's not good that man should be alone, so let's make, us, let's make him a helpmeet. It's called complementarianism. You complement your spouse. You help each other. I'll never forget. This is, this is a little... Uh, personal aside. I'll never forget, I was in Memphis School of Preaching where you study every verse of the Bible in 20 months, 19, 20 months. And the single guys, well, we kind of had it good because when you show up to Memphis, they sit everyone down, wives of the students and the students and the single students and everybody gets in the chapel and Brother Liddell stood up in front of the chapel and he said, Wives, I need to talk to you for just a minute. Kiss your husband goodbye. You'll see him in 19 to 20 months. And I saw those those married men working through school and they were beyond stressed out. And then I saw the single guys who all we had to do was remember to eat, 
Remember to sleep, learn how to iron your clothes, and do your homework. And one day, somebody said, man, y'all have it so easy. One of the married guys looked at me and said, y'all have it so easy. You don't have to do anything. And I said, that's, that's true. However, you have somebody to talk to. You have somebody to help you. You see, God has created us to need someone. And so God looks down at mankind and he says, it's not good that men should be alone. Let us make a help me comparable to him. Someone that will help him. Not only help him get to heaven, but help him get his general life together and get his, 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 stay alive as it were. I mean, the fact is that most of the time they keep us alive when we don't realize it, guys. All right, so number one, one of the purposes of marriage is because we're not meant to be alone. One of the purposes of marriage that God instituted this, this matrimony that we'll talk about in just a second is because he created mankind to need other people. You talk about friendships. You can't, let's just talk about the church. You can't be a Christian without the church. People say, well, I, I, I follow Jesus, but I don't, I don't go to church. I don't need the church. I just need Jesus. No, you, you need the church. If you, think, if you think that you can live a Christian faithful life and not have other Christians around you, you are sadly mistaken. Number one, it's because we need other people. Number two is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Concerning the questions that you asked me, Paul, Paul spends six chapters of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, dealing with problems that they needed, that they didn't know they needed. Because there again, we're not meant to be alone. We can't go through life alone. We, we're not meant to at least. We can't go through faith alone. We, that's impossible. And so he spends six chapters dealing with problems that they would have never seen had it not been for Paul writing a letter to them. And then chapter 7, he says, okay, let's answer your questions. Apparently they had asked a question at some point. What happens when the persecution comes? Y'all keep telling us about this persecution. What happens when it comes? Because now I'm going to have my wife, and I've got to take care of her, but what happens when the Romans break into worship service? How do I take care of my wife? What happens, when, what happens when a Roman official comes to me and says, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me who the other Christians are? Do I tell him my wife's name too? And he says, for that reason, because of what you asked me, it's good that a man not know a woman. That you not be married. That you be like me. Because Paul didn't have to worry about that question. But if you can't, if you can't live your life and, and, and suppress your physical desires that God created within you, then you need to be married. So number one is complementarianism. You're not meant to be alone. Number two is to the expression of physical desires. Number three, well, point number three is found in Ephesians chapter 5, and that is the way the church relates to Christ is the same way that a husband relates to his wife, or a wife, sorry, to her husband. And so marriage is meant to be a picture of God's relationship with us, that he is the head and that we, we follow him and we help him and we, we, we serve him and so forth. So there's three purposes of marriage in Scripture. You're not meant to be alone, the expression of physical desires, 
and to show us God's relationship with us. Now, that being said, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 says this. I'm reading from the King James Version. New King James, sorry. New King James Version. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. You do not deal treacherously. In that time period, the way you got married, if you look at the book of Ruth, you'll see that Ruth lays down beside Boaz, and Boaz covers her with his garment. And so what Malachi is doing is making a picture. He's using a word picture that they would have understood. When you get married, you're covered by your husband's garments, ladies. And if you divorce your your spouse, you're turning those garments into, what what does the text say? Into violence. You, You cover one's garments with violence. And so God hates divorce. So let's talk about three reasons why God hates divorce. Number one, marriage, again, is a picture of our relationship with Him. And God doesn't want to lose you. God doesn't want to lose me. The Lord is long-suffering concerning His promise, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why has Christ not come back for the judgment day yet? I have no idea. Biblically speaking. But I think it's probably because He's waiting for that last person to obey the gospel. See, He knows who's going to obey the gospel. He knows if you're going to, and if you're going to... He knows if, if you're going to stay faithful or not. I've told you the story about when I was baptized and, and a friend of mine walked up and he said, I have, a, I have a talent and I can look at new Christians and they can tell, I, can, I, can, I can tell whether or not they're going to stay faithful. And he looked at me and said, you won't stay faithful. But he will, the, my friend that was baptized two weeks later. My friend that was baptized two weeks later is no longer a member of the church. And that was all I needed to say, watch this. Anyways, see, I'm that kind of person. If you tell me I can't do something, watch me. You can't stay faithful. Hmm? Uh, bet you I can. Anyway, so, number one, the reason why God hates divorce is because it's a picture of our relationship with him. And he knows who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. And he doesn't want to lose anyone. Number two is because marriage carries his name. We've talked about in the last few weeks on Wednesday nights, the term holiness, it, is, it only applies to God. His name is holy and reverend, the psalmist would say. He is holy. He is wholly set apart. That's what the word holy means. He is wholly different. He's completely different from everyone else. And yet we t- use that term to designate marriage. Holy matrimony. And so marriage carries his name. It's so important, his name is, that he put it in the Ten Commandments. It's so important that entire nations of people were destroyed in the Old Testament times because they failed to recognize the holiness of the name of God. Number three, why does God hate divorce? It questions the permanency of his plan. I want to say this very quickly. I've heard over the years numerous people saying something to the effect of, 
well, you know, some marriages just don't work, Lee. You know, some, some things just don't work out. Lee, you're really optimistic. Some, I remember one time I was talking to a young woman about our age, and she was having problems with her husband, and she said, I've, I've just got to leave. I've got to leave. I've got to leave. And I said, there's still hope. And she said, no, there's not. I said, yes, there is. No, there's not. Yes, there is. We went back and forth for days and days. And she said, why are you so optimistic? And I said, I'm not optimistic. I just know the truth. And that is, marriages don't fail. People fail. Your marriage, if those of you who are married, your marriage is not an entity in and of itself. Your marriage is you and your spouse. And marriages don't fail. People fail. At times, all of us fail. But there is always hope for us, right? There's not a point at which a person can become so sinful, so lost, that they have no hope if they'll only change their mind, repent. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the, the unforgivable sin, is only unforgivable because we won't repent of it. When a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit, they, their heart has become so hardened that they're not going to repent. But if they do repent, guess what happens? They're forgiven. Marriages don't fail. People do. And the fact is that divorce questions the permanency of God's plan. He knows that it's on us. All right, so let's talk about the rest of this passage. Matthew chapter 19. Wind is blowing my papers all over the place. Matthew chapter 19. Question number one, he says, well, the, the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife for any cause? And he doesn't answer them. He says, this is the case, that God hates divorce. You remember that passage in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16? You remember the fact that God has joined you together, and, and if, you, if you question the permanency of God's plan, you're questioning who God is, and that you hold the name of God in your marriage. So they ask this question. Verse number 7, Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why did Moses say we could then? If you're saying we should never get divorced, why did Moses say you could? Moses, verse 8, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. God's plan for marriage is that, that it be for life. God's plan for marriage is that we would stay faithful in, in multiple ways. I know that's usually talked about in the physical, but that's not only physical. Our faithfulness to God is not only measured in our physical actions, right? Your faithfulness to God is not declared because you're sitting in a pew, in a pink pew on a Sunday morning in June of 2018. You can say it's mauve, it's pink. Your faithfulness to God is not declared because you send money to some missionary in Tanzania who will be back in two weeks. Your faithfulness to God is not only declared because of what you do. Your faithfulness to God is also declared by what you think and who you are. 
And so Moses says, because of the hardness of your hearts, you can divorce your spouse. But he didn't just say, because you're you're a mean person, you can divorce your spouse. What he said was, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, if you find some sexual impurity in her, if you find some impurity in your spouse, you can divorce. But the fact is, that doesn't have to be the answer. Every single person on the planet Earth knows someone who has been through a divorce. Most people know someone who has been through a divorce because of a physical reason. Most Christians know the person who, as soon as their spouse committed some physical impurity, they booted him to the curb like a sack of trash. Right? I can, I can tell you numerous names of people, as soon as they found out about some sexual impurity, boom, you're gone, you're out, goodbye. But the fact of the matter is, that's not what Jesus says in this passage. Because of the hardness of your heart, some problems are just too big for the person to get over. That's understandable. That's why Moses made that agreement with you in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. But, from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, the ESV says sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. The word sexual immorality there is the Greek word pornea. It means a physical act. It's not a mental act. It's not a, a... Well, it's physical. It's physical. The word sounds like something that we have today. But that action is mental. Pornea in Matthew 19 is physical. What it says is, if you have a spouse who commits some physical sexual immorality, then you have the ability, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, not to put them away. You see, God hates divorce. But because of hardness of heart, it is allowed at times. Because some problems are just too big. But the fact is, that that doesn't have to be the answer. If there's some physical problem, that doesn't have to be the answer. The answer can be that you work through it. Marriages don't fail. People fail. However, I say to you, verse number 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. That means that if you divorce your spouse for any reason other than this physical immorality, and you go and marry another one, you're in sin. And if you go and marry that other one, Mark chapter 10 says that you cause the other person who wasn't involved in that first one to begin with to be in the same sin that you are. You look through the Old Testament and you see the importance of keeping yourself pure. But you also see the importance of helping other people become pure. In fact, there's whole passages that say, if you give alcoholic drink to your neighbor, you're in sin just as much as they are. You see, Matthew 19 says this. If you divorce 
because of the hardness of your heart? And you remarry someone and that divorce was not because of sexual immorality, physical sexual immorality. You've committed adultery and you've caused your new spouse to commit adultery. And so the question arises. Question number three. The disciples, verse 10, said to him, If such is the case with his wife, it's better not to marry. Question number three, should we just stay single for the rest of our lives? That seems pretty difficult. You see, the fact is, by, the, by this time, most people had sided with the side of Hillel. Most people, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Essenes were different. They, they, kind, of, they kind of stayed on the, the side of truth. But Pharisees, Sadducees, the majority of Jews in that time period, and apparently the disciples up until this point, sided with the, with the side that said that you can divorce your wife for any reason. And so they asked Jesus the question, if, if marriage is so difficult, and if this is so important, maybe we should just not get married to begin with. And he answers this way. Verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive it, receive it. Maybe it's the case that you shouldn't get married. I mean, Paul says the same thing, right? There are some times when people should not get married. Jesus says it this way. There are some people who have been made eunuchs because of physical reasons. Maybe they've been made eunuchs because of other reasons. There are some people who have made themselves eunuchs. They will never be married because of the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about Paul. He's talking about people in 1 Corinthians 7 who decided it was better for their faith to not be married for one reason or another. But just know this, that that's not the majority. You know, entire religions have taken that verse and meant and, and, and extrapolated it to mean that if you're really spiritual, you won't get married. No. God made you with the need to be married. But he also understands that sometimes a decision has to be made that keeps you from doing that. Well, God wants us all to be happy. He does. Not happy here, though. God is not worried about whether or not you are happy on this earth. God is not worried about your about your level of comfortability on this earth. God wants you to be happy with Him for eternity. Sometimes that means you have to make decisions that don't make you happy here so that you can be with Him for eternity. Sometimes that means that because of the hardness of your heart, you have to make a decision. And sometimes that means that because of situations that are enacted by other people, you have to make a decision. But he gives the caveat. And the caveat is, if that decision is made because of the actions of another person, and that other person committed physical sexual immorality, they've broken that bond to begin with. And so you can be remarried. It's not a fun topic to talk about. But realistically, 
There are a lot of passages in the scripture that aren't happy to talk about, fun to talk about. Like, it's fearful to fall into the hands of a living God. Or the rich man and Lazarus and the state of the rich man after his death. But we need it. Because if we take the law of God and we change it into what we want, it's no longer the law of God. And it's us. We've put ourselves in his place. And I know that Matthew 19 is is the, the basis for a lot of controversy in the church and outside the church. And I understand that entire religious doctrines have been based on trying to get around this passage. Do you know that there are people who will say to you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't belong in the New Testament? That those, were, those are Old Testament passages. Even though Jesus said, I'm teaching you about the kingdom that is coming after my death. Anyways, those, those are old passages. You know why? You know why it started? Because someone didn't agree with Matthew 19. So they started an entire doctrine that the Gospels, the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't count to the Christian because we want to escape a single verse. Matthew 19, verse 9. There are entire doctrines that say that if you, if you commit a sin and you're baptized, doesn't matter what happens to that sin. Let me ask you a, just, a, just a blanket question. Simple, common sense question. Say I stole a car last week. And I'm driving that car around. And I go to a gospel meeting on a Tuesday night at the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ. And I'm convicted and I repent of my sins And I'm baptized that night. And then I get out and I get in that car and I drive home. Am I okay? I didn't repent of my sin. There's entire doctrines that say if you're you're married and you're divorced for a thousand times and then you become a Christian, you're perfectly fine. You're still driving the car. You never repented to begin with. And like we talked about in Bible class this morning, Belief is only part of the equation. Baptism is only part of the equation. Confession is only part of the equation. Repentance is in there too. And sometimes I think we think that repentance means you just say, I've sinned. A lot of times when someone walks to the front of a church building and they're already a Christian, after the invitation and a Christian comes forward and says, I need need sins, you know what usually is said? I'll tell you, this summer when we go to camp and then this fall when we go to youth days and all that stuff, I guarantee you, I know what those kids will say. Are you ready for this? The statement will say something like this. I haven't been living right and I ask the church to forgive me. We know you hadn't been living right. It's not repentance. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. Repentance is not just saying, I have sinned in the past. We know you've sinned in the past because we've sinned in the past. Repentance is naming them. It's being honest about our failures. And a person cannot just simply 
repent and be absolved of the consequences of any of their sins. I wish I had met him, but he, I don't, uh, if, if he were still alive today, I know that there was no chance that I was ever going to get to meet him. But do you know that if you're a member of the body of Christ, you have a brother in Christ named Jeffrey Dahmer, who was baptized. Jim read the letters from him a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized in jail for the forgiveness of his sins and added to the body of Christ. What happens if brother Jeffrey gets up from the water and says, okay, you have to release me now. No, we're not releasing you. You're paying the consequences for your problems. And he understood that. And we should as well. Sometimes we have to pay consequences for our problems long after. I have very good friends, very good friends, who fall into the category of Matthew 19, and they're not the person who is innocent. They're the guilty party. I have very good friends who are the guilty party, who are more faithful today than they were before it happened because they realize that maybe they have to pay consequences for their sins, but at the same time, they can use those consequences to teach other people. And maybe it is the case that someone is the guilty party in Matthew 19. What do they do? You just mean that Christ just wants them to be unhappy for the rest of their lives? No. Christ wants them to use the consequences for their sins to teach other people how to not pay the same consequences for their sins. See, it's the same with everything else. It's my job to use my past sins to teach you not to fall guilty of those. And it's your job to teach me not to fall guilty to your past sins. There again, God did not create us to be alone. He created us to be together. That's why we need each other. I need Ron to tell me when I'm acting like a fool sometimes. It's okay. That's good. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It may not take away the consequences, but it takes away the condemnation. And Matthew 19 is very clear. Uh, I struggle with preaching entire sermons on Matthew 19 because of this reason. It's kind of cut and dry. If you divorce your spouse for any reason other than sexual immorality and you go and marry someone, you've committed adultery and now you're causing your new spouse to commit adultery. But if you put your spouse away, the implication is if you put your spouse away because of immorality, sexual immorality, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, you have the ability to be remarried you don't fall into the condemnation, the consequences of that sin. You see, we have to pay consequences sometimes. The good thing is we can always be forgiven of sins. We can always take away the condemnation of the sin. Maybe not the consequences, but the condemnation. If you're here this morning and you need to become a Christian, let me say this. It may not take away the consequences for your sins. You may have to live a different life because of the way that you have sinned in the past. But I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will not be held accountable for the condemnation of those sins. It may change the way you live today, but it will not change the way you live tomorrow if you are baptized and a believer in Jesus Christ. If you need to become a Christian, don't wait. There's one thing that is more serious in Scripture than any other thing, and that is the importance of doing it right then. I was talking to a preacher of a denomination a few weeks ago 
And I said, what happens if a person wants to be baptized? What do you do? You wait a few months? And he said, no. Are you kidding me? If a person wants to be baptized, we're going to go to the building right then and baptize them. The world understands it, that you shouldn't wait. Even, they don't even understand the truth about baptism, but they know that you should do it right then. A member of the church, and people who are around the church should know you should not wait. If the world can get it, we can get it. shouldn't wait. If you need to be baptized for the mission of your sins, you need to do it right now. And if you are a member of the church and you've fallen, you've fallen guilty to some sin that we've talked about today, or you just need encouragement and prayers, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you and let us know while we do that.